Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing Extra, a podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, stepping briefly into the presenter's chair to bring you this bonus episode to discuss the Chancellor's forthcoming second budget. Rishi Sunak took up the post of Chancellor only a matter of weeks before he had to present his first budget last March. This time, he has overseen the whole process, but with economics and politics still dominated by COVID, he may not have had as much scope to stamp his mark on Wednesday's announcements as he might have liked. When laying out the roadmap out of lockdown last week, the Prime Minister said the government would continue to do whatever it takes to protect jobs and livelihoods across the UK. One of the Chancellor's jobs in the budget will be to deliver on that promise. But the budget is also likely to look beyond that, to lay out policies to help the economy recover, and perhaps even hint at the Chancellor's longer-term objectives for tax, spending and borrowing. To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined today by Tom Pope, IFG Senior Economist. Hi, Tom. Hi, Gemma. Giles Wilkes, IFG Senior Fellow, is also with us. Hi, Giles. Hi, Gemma. And I'm delighted to be joined by Will DePere, who spent five years in the Treasury as a special advisor to Danny Alexander when he was Chief Secretary in the Coalition Government. Will, great to have you with us. Hi, Gemma. Are you missing the excitement of being in the Treasury in the run-up to Budget Day? Uh, I definitely am. Uh, I have to say it was one of the... It's the great thing about being in the Treasury. You always had two fiscal events every year. Um, And so you always had an an event to look forward to where your department was at the centre of everything. And it felt like the centre of the world for for that brief time. Um, And I think working, I know everybody says how great Treasury civil servants are, but I think in times of crisis and times of budgets, they really um, excel. Uh, And so it was a a great time to be around. It's always very, very exciting um, with so much going on. Well, let's start by talking about what the budget is likely to do to deliver on that promise from Boris Johnson that the government will not pull the rug out from under people's livelihoods. Tom, what do you think Rishi Sunak needs to do to deliver on that promise? Given that we got the roadmap out of lockdown and we now know that restrictions of some form and actually quite stringent restrictions are likely to be in place until mid-June at least, it seems like the, the least that the Chancellor needs to do is to extend those um, those programmes, the furlough scheme, the self-employed support, the business rates holidays and grants for businesses. You think they need to be extended at least towards um, the middle of June. I think one thing the Chancellor could do to help himself here is that we've had a few other cliff edges that have come along in the past during this crisis. Think about the end of October when the furlough scheme was meant to end and it was only announced on the day uh, that actually it wasn't going to be ended after all. I think what the Chancellor needs to do is instead of setting another arbitrary date when we hope to be able to lift restrictions and hope to be able to end economic support, is to explicitly tie when economic support is going to be available to the restrictions that are in place and make it clear to businesses that if restrictions have to be extended for longer, then the support will be extended too. And that means we won't get some of those spikes in redundancy notifications and um, jobs being lost unnecessarily due to um, late communication from the Chancellor. So you've argued in the past that the Chancellor ought to consider targeting help at specific industries rather than necessarily extending help for all businesses. Why did you argue that and do you think that applies this time as well? The support the Chancellor has announced and has had throughout the pandemic has been necessary not only to protect people's incomes and livelihoods now, but also to protect the economic recovery, because the nature of the restrictions and the effects of the virus has meant that 
lots of the economies effectively had to shut down. And without the economic support from the government, we would have had um, a we would have had lots of good jobs and good businesses going under, and that would have weighed on any economic recovery because we'd have sort of been losing a lot of the good things that the economy has that we then have had to rebuild up again uh, in a recovery. But that is more true for some sectors than it is for others. So arts, arts and entertainment, hospitality, aviation, sectors like that clearly cannot operate as normal. But the other effect of the um, economic support measures is it has not only protected those jobs that are perfectly viable in the future but aren't right now because of restrictions, it's also protected jobs that may have no good long-term future. And that is a, a cost of the measures that the government's announced. Now, that is a, a trade-off that the Chancellor has made. But I think he can manage that trade-off better if he targets support at those industries that really are affected by restrictions, like um, like arts, entertainment, and hospitality, whereas other sectors that are relatively unaffected, think about construction or manufacturing or financial services, if you provide less generous support there, you'll be supporting fewer unviable jobs in those sectors. I think that would be a better balance between the sort of costs of this generous support along with the very big benefits. So, Giles, Tom's kind of made the case that you could effectively improve value for money of these schemes if you targeted them sectorally. Why do you think the Chancellor's been so reluctant to do that? And, and do you disagree? It's always easy as a think tank wonk um, or even a spad to be in favour of targeting because it's better value, isn't it? You give money to the people who deserve it or need it and you don't to the others. And I remember as a sort of reasonably neoliberal people, we think giving money to people who don't deserve it actually has a downside. They might be grateful and everything, but they're not. it's not the way the economy is meant to work. It gives them bad incentives. Um, and it normally becomes very addictive on both, on both sides. So naturally it makes sense. Um, a priori, find the people who've been hurt. And this is such a K-shaped economy right now. I wish I'd thought of K-shaped in the first place because it's, it's such a fantastic way of expressing the fact that some things have gone straight down and some things have gone straight up. I mean, like today we saw some figures about the huge household cash balances that some households are building up. Some people are feeling really flush and are rearing to go the moment they're vaccinated and confident. And some people have been suffering minus 99% revenues, like um, like some of the trans parts of the transport sector that haven't been able to operate and so on. So, yeah, targeting makes perfect sense if you think you could do that in practical terms and if you think you can do it in political terms, because the boundaries are never as neat as all that. So. If you're in the arts sector, as Tom says, yeah, you've been hit. What about if you're um, in one of the food and drink delivery se services that used to deliver to the theatre sector? You, do you count? You have all of those kind of weird fuzzinesses and um, and a sense of unfairness the moment you um, the moment you basically draw the line in the wrong place. So given that they've had to operate at speed, I mean, this is incredible that the Treasury has delivered quite so much and you'd expect all sorts of inefficiency when you normally act that fast. He's just had to trade off the ability to nail it against the sort of political, the high the high level policy attractiveness of being targeted. So we have had nearly a year now of these rescue policies in place. Would you do anything to tweak the structure of those policies in this hopefully final phase of the rescue? I would think it's very difficult to do this, partly because if you're doing it just at the final phase, they'll be asking for you to go back and do it from the beginning. So the cost might be really, really high for the actual the bang for the buck you're giving right now. Also, because it's this is an exceptionally difficult time of policy. When you're moving from the restrictions phase to the recovery phase, for restrictions, you need fiscal 
support that's kind of like relief. It's not there to induce people to spend money. It's there to stop them going bust and suffering really serious distress. It's like recapitalizing them. Whereas the recovery, you're meant to be thinking about their incentives. You're meant to be designing things that encourages them to do the things you want them to do, like well, eat out to help out was one example, or hiring an apprentice is another. And that includes introducing market incentives. And they're really, it's very difficult to do that. So it'd be sending a really weird signal to give people relief style measures at the same time as you're trying to plan incentivizing recovery style measures, because they're often very different from each other. Will, there was a strong sense last year that Rishi Sunak wasn't quite on the same page as the Prime Minister in terms of the desired speed of reopening in the economy. So exactly that switch from kind of rescue into recovery mode. Do you think that's still the case or are they more in the same place now? Listen, I think it's really interesting. The thing that's actually surprised me so much is you know, going back to October where, as has already been said, it you know, the the um, furlough scheme wasn't extended until the very last day. I just simply don't understand why the Chancellor hasn't taken the opportunity of the roadmap already being out there to tell us what we all already know, that those, you know, the furlough scheme, the VAT, the business rates, all of that is going to be extended. And he's really suffered. I thought I almost felt sorry for him yesterday or Ma having to say that he's got a budget coming up. I mean, you're the Chancellor, man. You can you can announce these things outside a budget period. Um, and I think in these these circumstances that we're in, yes, it's unusual, but the, the circumstances merit being, you know, a little bit unusual. And now maybe, maybe he wants to hold back because he is wanting to make some changes in the budget and thinks that it's better to do it then. Um, but I, I think... I, th- I don't think any of us are really expecting any major changes to those schemes. So why not just announce it now? Um, and I think, I think to, to come to your question a bit more specifically, I think he has he has obviously felt a bit of pressure from being, you know, I guess outed a little bit in the media as not being quite in step with the prime minister. And I think he really will now just have to fall in line with the rest of government because. We are at the final stage, well, fingers crossed, we are at the final stages of this pandemic. Um, And the government needs to be seen to be acting in unison more now than I think ever before. Uh, So I imagine that the the Chancellor will be using a lot of the language that the Prime Minister has been using um, and really trying to stick as closely as possible both to the Prime Minister and to what Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, is saying. So thinking then about that sort of next stage of the plan into the recovery phase, whenever that begins, well, Rishi Sunak first attempted to launch the economy into recovery at the start of, at the end of last summer with policies like eat out, help out and the VAT cut for hospitality sector, um, which in a sense he came in with criticism for because that was sort of encouraging people to go out and do all things that actually are also associated with potentially increasing the risk of spreading the virus. Do you think he's likely to reach for a similar set of recovery stimulus policies this time, or do you think we'll see something a bit different? I think we'll see something a bit different, actually. I think, I mean, from from a personal perspective, I'm sort of raring to get out there. I don't need an incentive like I'll eat out to help out to go to a restaurant. Um, you know, a VAT cut for hospitality might be good to repair some of the balance sheets of those businesses, but there's not, you know, it's never was intended to get passed on to consumers anyway. Um, so I'm not really sure that there needs to be any consumer incentive 
to get the economy going again. As Giles mentioned, there are plenty of people out there with piles of cash um, they've managed to accumulate. And I think a lot of people are just waiting to be given the green light to go and spend some of it. So I think, I guess it's coming onto a bigger macro picture. I think there's going to be a massive rebound in GDP. And I think the only thing that perhaps the Chancellor needs to pray for is a really, really good summer of lots of sunshine rather than lots of rain. That means that people can't go indoors and, you know, they'll be forced indoors rather than being allowed to be outside and enjoying themselves. I remember reflecting on this when there was talk about him doing an extra beer duty cut in order to get people out drinking. I'm thinking after about a year without going to the pub, you're going to say, no, I'm not going to have a pint because he hasn't let me off two pitch. It seems quite ridiculous. What it does tell you is that the lobbyists for a beer duty cut are absolutely brilliant and they manage to get their lobby in all the time. But the idea that that's the reason we're going to go to the pub right now seems crazy. <laughs> and One of the things that seems to be quite a lot of speculation, speculation around Giles is that the budget might contain some targeted tax breaks for specific industries or incentives to invest in some parts of the country, kind of pulling together the government's industrial strategy objectives with levelling up and the recovery from COVID. Do you think it's likely that they'll do that? And is that a sensible way of trying to stimulate the recovery? Well, it's tempting. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I, I could see it being tempting politically. And if they've done their workings in time, it perhaps happening. Because after one of the points of Brexit was to be able to make more targeted interventions around the place. And the idea that if we were in charge of the levers, some of the kind of neoliberal truths against messing around too much and putting in too much complexity. Actually, we're smart enough to know that we can do this in this region or that with that sector. So I think it's possible if they've got things ready. Is it wise? Um, I tend to be slightly sceptical, particularly of the tax break side. On the whole, these tax breaks will eventually accumulate a lot of gaming and restructuring in order to take best advantage of them. And you end up with activity being displaced rather than actually newly created. We've introduced an awful lot of investment tax breaks over the years for like small company investments and uh, enterprise zones with special little bungs. And on the whole, they don't suddenly create little Singapore on Thames around the country. So um, I, I hope that they can stop and think about this because right now in this year of all, we're going to have a big demand recovery unless something awful happens. They don't need to be doing doing that sort of thing right now. Tom, what's your take? What are you expecting from the stimulus? And I guess, what's your take on this difficult question of how big a stimulus is really going to be needed? Yeah, I, th- I think I, I agree with with Will when he says that um, there may well be a, a quick bounce back in, on the consumer side. I mean, I don't know how much that's just me extrapolating from how I'm feeling to how the rest of the economy is going to behave. Um, but, but certainly, I think you know, th- there's no guarantee that the Chancellor needs to do something big on um, to stimulate consumer spending. And actually doing that could even be a, a bit of a risk. You could get a, a bit of inflation. I suppose the, the area where he might want to do more on the recovery is is on the public investment side. Now, the challenge with public investment is always whether you've got shovel-ready projects that can actually get going in time to be of any use for, for stimulus. But if the Chancellor is keen to um, be promoting his green credentials and talking about a green recovery, given that his... Um, the last time he tried to do recovery policy, the Green Homes Grant was his, his big green measure, and that hasn't really got off the ground. Hardly any of that has been spent. So I wonder if we might see a bit more, um, either on public investment or some other measures designed to 
and yeah, burnish those green credentials of the government and perhaps something a bit more radical than, than the Green Homes Grants. Will, what's your take on this? This is something governments often try and reach for as those shovel-ready projects that can get the money out of the door. What was your experience of that? Uh, I think there, there's lots and lots of chatter about shovel-ready products among um, political classes especially. And I think the sad fact is they're just hardly ever there. Um, uh, MPs will always come up with schemes that they say are shovel-ready in their, in their constituencies. Uh, but my experience was as soon as you looked at them, you found that, yes, there was, you know, there, there may well have been a lot of a lot of support for a particular scheme, but actually none of the sort of planning work had been done um, to, to get it ready. So often things that were shovel-ready would have a completion time of maybe six or seven years in the future, which as a short-termist politician was never very good. I mean, on the other hand, I think, uh, I think some... Some politicians have been particularly good at talking about shovel-ready project, projects at numerous uh, elections where they're able to say that you know they're fighting for it in one election and then the next election comes along and they say, yes, we're just about to start building and the next election comes along and they're like, we're nearly finished building and you know, create this great story. But I think if you're talking about the sort of the macro picture in all of this, the number of shovel-ready schemes just isn't there. And I think the... To go back to Tom's point about the environment and the Green Homes Grant, that was supposed to be the shovel-ready thing. It's, it's not there because the supply chain's not there. Mm. So there is no quick fix for energy efficiency. Um, and I think in in lots of these, these areas, the government really needs to take a much longer-term view um, so to fix the issues so that they can more easily turn the taps on and off. It's much easier to to speed things up a little bit than it is to start afresh. And the, the use of the phrase shovel ready, I think you should remind us that nearly every time the politician is picturing him or herself with a hard hat with a high-vis jacket in a construction site. Now, construction, correct me if I'm wrong, is about 5% of GDP, maybe 5% of jobs, or maybe 6% of GDP, 5% of jobs, because they're slightly more remunerative. Than those. They're overwhelmingly male jobs, they're overwhelmingly not the sorts of jobs that have been most badly hit um, in this retail Armageddon we've had in the last year. So it's, it does very much remind me of this, you know, the economist looking under the light um, for the car keys he's lost because that's where the light is. It's not necessarily, it's the tool that people think they've got. We've got a capital budget, it's mostly on construction things, but it's not where most economic demand that people's jobs can come from can go. So you either need a convoluted story for how, why the construction site is going to end up producing all the ancillary services that employs everybody else, or you need a better um, a better kind of virtual shovel for when you're stimulating the economy, because not everything is a building site. So the one set of policies we haven't sort of touched on yet is um, what government might do to try and incentivise the private sector to invest. We've obviously seen pretty low levels of business investment over the last year and even before that since the Brexit vote. Do you think that's an area that they should target? Giles, what's, what's your thinking? I, I've been having a lot of fun looking over. The OBR has got this phenomenal transparency and honesty of showing all of its past forecasts. So for each year, for each variable, for each future year. Business investment is just constantly disappointing. I mean, let's take 2019. In about six years ago, we were predicting that it would be a 6% growth in business investment, and that gradually came down until it was about 1%. So, of course, they should be thinking about how to invest 
um, get businesses to invest more. And you can indeed see a bit of a kink in the chart when Brexit happens. But the um, it's almost like it's the it's the end result of a lot of uh, government policy. If your government policy is really really good, business investment should follow. I mean, if you've got a great, exciting macroeconomy, everyone's confident that there aren't big downside risks. There's all sorts of useful demands to serve. You've got a big open market to serve from doing it. Then business investment ought to follow. And so, of course, they should be doing it. But when they go too narrowly, like trying to, say, uh, design a tax break around it too much, you'll get an awful lot of dead weight. So the best way to get business investment going is to get the UK economy into a really good state and in particular to have a really large market for people based in the UK economy to serve. So moving ahead to look to the future then, there seems to be growing discontent on the Conservative backbenches or parts of the Conservative backbenches at rumours that the Chancellor is considering tax rises either in this budget or in the budget later this year. Tom, in the middle of a major economic crisis and with government borrowing costs extremely low still, why is it the Chancellor feels the need to tackle this question that is so unpopular with many in his party? Yeah, as you say, Gemma, the, the middle of a, an economic crisis is, is not generally considered the right time to raise taxes. And I think almost all economists uh, agreed on this at the moment. I think it's, it's rare you get so many economists in agreement from sort of across the um across the spectrum. I think there are two aspects to this. One is, the first is that the Chancellor, I think, has realised that tax rises are going to be needed at some points. And that's because coronavirus is likely to have made the economy smaller than it otherwise would have been. And that means less tax and for the same amount of spending, therefore a higher deficit. I also think he he thinks that we're going to have to be spending more as well. Um, Post-COVID, there's likely to be more demand for public services, whether that be to fix the backlogs that the COVID crisis has caused, or because we're now going to demand, for example, a more resilient NHS, that we're more robust to future crises, that's going to require additional spending too. There's also the the social safety net aspect as well. At the same time, this is being pressured not to increase taxes, is also being pressured to make permanent the increase in universal credit as well. And then even before this crisis, um, we've been saying for some time that tax rises are likely to be necessary because of demographic pressures leading to higher spending. So for all of those reasons, I think the Chancellor's decided tax rises are going to need to come at some point. So the second question is, why now? And I think the the, the generous interpretation is that um, the Chancellor knows that doing tax reform is difficult. And he also knows that crises can open windows for when more difficult decisions might be possible and the public might be more willing to wear it. And perhaps he's worried that if he waits too long to announce those tax rises, that that window will have closed. And therefore, he sees this as the opportunity to make those changes. Uh, the slightly more cynical interpretation is that um, chancellors don't like to raise taxes near budgets, uh, near, near elections rather. And so the sooner the better from his perspective. Well, if you were sitting as a special advisor to the Chancellor, what would you be suggesting to him on this? Uh, I think I'd be very firmly suggesting don't even bother talking about tax rises yet. Uh, I think the level of uncertainty um, out there, really, on the, on the economy is just so vast that we, you know, a year from now, we've got absolutely no idea where we're going to be. Charles talked about the, the uh, OBR being very good at, you know, marking its own homework and checking how its forecasts have been. I mean, 
you only have to look at their forecasts of the deficit to realise it's a very, very difficult thing to judge. And so the structural hit that the UK economy is going to take is you know, very difficult to judge. And then sort of the, the greater bit of uncertainty under all of this is, is I think, around the hit of Brexit, which you know has so far passed without, without a huge amount of comment um, in terms of the impact on the economy. But I think as hopefully we come out of this pandemic, we'll start to see the impact of Brexit on the public finances um, and see what that means. So at the moment, I'd be saying absolutely don't bother even talking about tax rises. There's no point trying to do it now. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, there are only certain, there are only a certain number of levers that you can pull and you just have to be ready to pull them, you know, in the, in the future. But, I wouldn't wouldn't be talking about it now myself. If, if, if I can dissent while acknowledging that Will DePere was emphatically a better political spad than I ever was, um, I think my advice has combined lost governments hundreds of seats. But um, I mean, I was one of the reasons I got quite cross under the coalition and left was because of the dishonesty about the assumption that we could deal with our deficits going forward without using tax and yet keeping a decent level of public spending going. Um, it's, um, if you look at the way the forecast for public spending under the coalition dipped massively as they said, hey, we're going to get to a, a, a flat budget, we're going to balance the budget. And they did it by pretending they could spend like 50 billion less than we ended up needing to do. And this is because they also had tax locks and they said, well, we don't need to raise taxes either. We can do all these magic things. And I, I sometimes think because the Labour Party was 5% more honest, they were in a terrible bind. Now, what I see Rishi Sunak doing here is just attempting to be a little bit more honest than everyone has been about what it's going to be like in three or four years' time. In three or four years' time, we are going to have those extra calls on the public purse that Tom has referred to. I think we've had a whole shift in the public's attitude to what public spending they should expect. And I think we've had a lot of brewing issues that long austerity years are just going to burst out with. So we're going to have higher public spending. And that means we are going to, at some point, need higher taxes. Now, Rishi is trying to um, roll the pitch on the most the most difficult pitch of all, the Tory backbencher who, if anyone listens to Gemma's podcast from over the weekend, who denies ever the need to raise taxes because ma- money's magic. He's kind of, he's confronting them at the time he has to. And if you were to start anywhere, I would say corporate tax, well, it's not a bad one because the people who pay it are the ones who have at least made a profit. So I, I, so I think he's done the right thing. And I, I've got, and I say that sort of through gritted teeth. And we've actually also had the Treasury Select Committee put out a big new report on tax after coronavirus just two days ahead of the budget, in which they actually also lay out this unsustainable public finances path and call on the government to, to take it more seriously. And it's quite unusual getting cross-party agreement on that from that committee with quite a range of views among among the members of it. Do you think, perhaps Giles or, or Will, did, will that help with the, the difficult politics of this? Well, do you think it would be helpful? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I think the the, the point I was really trying to say was that, um, yes, you know, everyone knows that tax rises are going to be needed. And I think, Giles, you said it, you said it brilliantly, like even the public know, like it's out there. There's no reason for the Chancellor to be basically upsetting his backbenchers now, I don't think. And the consensus in the, the Select Committee, that's great. It's all there. All the pieces of the jigsaw are falling into place. I just don't think there needs to be this 
this this this talk of tax rises all the time that I I, ju- I just worry will unsettle things. If we're if we're talking about how we want to stimulate business investment, is the right thing to be doing to be floating a six percent rise in corporation tax? So that is the other angle on this, away from the politics, is the sort of economics of this. Is it bad economics to get people worried about big tax rises coming down the line? Does that scupper the economic recovery at this stage? What, Giles, what do you think of that? I mean, it's a tricky one because, as, as you know, as Will says, yeah, there's been good polling evidence that the pe- people around, they can see all this money. They've been paid to stay at home. They know that the government is not magic. And so they know that some tax rises are coming. And so does business. So... I mean, you might say that business would rather not be ambushed or find a government that's suddenly forced to act by some kind of financial emergency that lays out a kind of pathway. I mean, I don't know because I've actually never been in the investment function of a business. Would you rather stay in the fool's paradise of thinking that corporate tax might stay down at 20% for the rest of the the next 10 years or be told now for certain we're going to raise it up to 23 or 24? I suspect 25 is a negotiating tactic. Um, And that's it because what you hate, doing in business is having to turn around to the CEO and say, my forecast was wrong. And that's undermined it all. So in a sense, this that terrible cliche that businesses hate uncertainty. Well, at least acknowledging that it's there and beginning to lay out the parameters of it. As for the economics of it, um, I, I'm, I'm somewhat sceptical about some of the economics of fiscal stimulus at a time like this. It's not lack of cash that is mostly stopping people from being able to um, spend money and get the economy going. It's mostly health restrictions. So it's very hard to understand what any particular tax measure will do to spending right now. So it's it's a fling your hands in the, in the air moment for me when it comes to the fiscal stimulus effect. Great. Well, so I think we've covered a lot of the topics of the budget, but and we have had an awful lot of pre-briefing of measures that might or might not be in the budget over the last few days as well. But presumably the Chancellor will as chancellors like to do, be holding something back to reveal on budget day to command those headlines. What do you think are going to be his rabbits out of the hat? Giles, perhaps I'll come to you first. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I think this this chancellor, has, has, I mean, he's really worked really hard this last year. So I'm not. this isn't a trivial point, but he's really enjoyed the job. He's enjoyed the spotlight. He enjoys the almost the showbiz angle. He seems to have an advisor that's purely aimed at that. I think he'd like to do something for showbiz. So I suspect that he's going to do something that is really targeted for the arts sector. I know he's announced a big sum of money already, but something amazing like he's going to give everybody a free West End ticket. I better not be the West End because that's so anti-leveling up. But you know what I mean? He's going to give people out these tickets and say, at some point you're going to be able to do this so that theatre producers can look forward to a bonanza one day. That's my guess. Okay. Well, what do you think he's got in his hat? Um, I think I think the best way of looking at it is to think about those people who are still unhappy with what the Chancellor's, you know, the support that the government has offered, the Chancellor has offered. And so I think you look at the, the three million excluded and you think, well, actually, is there something that he could do in that space? Just to recognise that, yes, you know, the support that has been provided, while, you know, very, very generous, hasn't affected them. So, you know, could there be some sort of, checking the post for all of those people who haven't received anything through the self-employed or the furlough scheme. And do you think he does that win him more political brownie points rather than, as Giles suggested earlier, perhaps opening up the can of worms of the question, why didn't you do more for us before and why is this so small? Uh, I think 
I think people will just remember the last thing that's happened most of the time. And I think if, if you don't do anything, you risk it being something that three million people are very upset about for a long time to come. At least give the, at least give your MPs and your party something to come back to them with. Tom, what would you be putting your money on? Well, it's, it's hard to find something that hasn't already been briefed somewhere. But if, if the last few years of budget rabbits are anything to go by, I suspect there may well be something in there that's um, designed to support home buying and home ownership for young people and does more to inflate house prices than anything else. Brilliant. Well, that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing Extra. My huge thanks to Giles Wilkes, Tom Pope, and especially to Will DePayer. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. We've got terrific new recordings there for you, including recent discussion with Tony Blair and interview with Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. Do also check out all our analysis of the budget later this week at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Thank you.